Hey, church, let's pray real quick, okay? Jesus, we love you so much. Your name is above every name, Jesus. Every knee bows to your name. To the feet of Jesus, you're the Lord of lords, you're the King of kings. And this morning as I come before you, Jesus, I offer myself just as your bondservant. Empty me, Jesus. I pray that every word of Zach would, would be void. And that your word would never return void, Jesus. I ask that you would take a hold of my tongue. I give myself over to you fully. Come, Jesus. Touch hearts. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, oh boy. The first thing that I just want to say that I felt really like the Lord put on my heart is that I only ever want to do what I see my Father in heaven doing. And I only ever want to say what I hear him say. That he's Abba. He's Lord in my life. I am nothing without him. And I truly believe that his word is totally sufficient and that there's nothing that I can bring you this morning that would ever rival what he can bring you. So I'm just, I've been praying all week that I would just be emptied and that it wouldn't be me speaking, but that it would be him. And so as I studied this passage, we're in Mark 5. If you guys want to flip to Mark 5, we're really going to stick to the text because I truly believe that his word is so sufficient and I have nothing else to offer you but his word and the revelation that he gave me from it. And so as I was studying, I found myself just brought to my knees in repentance and that his word came alive to me in such a way that I saw some of the lies and the deception of the enemy that I had, I had been believing and that I had relegated him to less than his ultimate authority and power, and that I needed to properly place him back again on the pedestal that he deserves and the authority that his name holds and what he has to offer us in the power of Christ's name, and that I'm merely just his servant, and I have nothing apart from his name. But when I pray in the name of Jesus, there is power, power over darkness, power over the demonic, power over the gates of hell, and that he has founded his church upon a firm rock that they will never prevail against. And that rock is Jesus Christ. So let's honor and glorify him today in his word and be brought to our knees in reverence, reverence and fear of who Jesus Christ is. So his word's sufficient. Let's read. We're starting in verse one of Mark 5, and it says this. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hands and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, 
what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high living God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So what we have presented to us here is a wretched character, maybe the most wretched character in all of scripture. I heard one theologian liken him maybe to Job, but it seems as if this man was tormented and tortured in his mind and the captivity of the demonic forces, a legion, thousands of demons that had entered in and resided in him as their home. And as I first approached the subject, I found myself a little bit afraid. This, is, this isn't a passage of scripture that should be taken lightly, nor is this something that we talk about in our day-to-day lives. It's normally almost even, I think, deliverance in and of itself can be a taboo subject that we would seek to kind of just hide off in the corner. We'll broach it. We know Jesus has power. He did it, but that's not for me, right? And so as I read this passage, the fear of the Lord fell upon me. And I just want to go back. And if you have the Bible in front of you, if you have a phone, I want to go very carefully through each and every verse, picking out pertinent details and then offering you some of the revelation that I felt God was putting on my heart. So as we go back to verse one, let's read again. They went across the lake. Let's be reminded that this lake was the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples, just before this, had gone out on a boat. Jesus had fallen asleep. While a storm that many theologians think may have been a tempest, a demonic, supercharged, supernatural, natural event, caused for all of his disciples to tremble and believe that they were going to die. And as Caleb had told us, these were men who often found themselves on the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen. This was almost more their home than was the land. And yet they were terrified at this great storm that had arose. Jesus wakes up from his sleep, looks at them, calms the storm, says, quiet, be still. And as Caleb said, pretty much telling the storm to sit down and to shut up, right? That Jesus is just annoyed by the demonic powers that be that could have been charging this storm to keep him from a very specific mission to find a very specific man who nobody in their right minds would go out and pursue, right? And he enters, they, they land in the region of Gerasenes. Gerasenes would be in modern day Syria. It's the eastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. This is a place that we can still find today. This is Gentile land though. I think it's important that we realize that Jesus is trending into a place that isn't full of his father's sheep, the Jews. He is venturing to a place full of Gentiles. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. So it's almost as if this man was waiting for Jesus. And the parallel uh, 
account of this in Matthew, we see that there was even maybe two men that came running. Could you imagine being one of the disciples and you just almost died on the water? You're terrified. You're like, oh, thank Lord. I'm on the lands. I'm here. And then you see these two crazies, these maniacs running at you, screaming. Could you imagine? I mean, that's more than my heart could take in one day, right? This would be a terrifying sight. Who are these crazy people? Why are they running at us? Let's read more. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. It tells us in Luke that this man also was nude. That he had no clothes. That it, we see here he was a very strong man. Could you imagine having iron steel clasps on your hands and your feet and having this supernatural strength to break the binds that the people had tried to keep him restrained with? Because this was a, not a normal man. This was a dangerous man. It's a scary man. This was somebody that you wouldn't want around your kids, that you wouldn't want around your business, He wouldn't want around anywhere. So they've sent him off to the tombs and he's broken free of every time that they tried to bind him. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So more than that, we see that he's probably a bit of what we would consider today a a mental ward patient almost. Somebody who we would try to diagnose, we would look to medicate, and we would take away from society, put them up in a room, and keep them out of sight, right? This is somebody who is so tormented that he desires to hurt himself. He enjoys living amongst the dead, And he's what we would probably consider a menace to society. Think about that. This is nobody that we would want to know. And we still see men and women, I think primarily men, that still fall into this category today. Some of our serial killers and the most vile and evil beings that we can imagine. We want to point back to modern day intellectualism to ignore the fact that there's something supernatural that's taking place in people's lives that's demonic, causing them to act out and to be dangerous to those around them. And instead of looking at them with compassion, we just see them as unclean and throw away. We just want to throw them away. And so, as we continue to the next verse, he saw Jesus from a distance. He ran and fell on his knees in worship. And in other translations, they use the word I just said the word worship. I didn't mean to say that. He just fell down before him. But in other translations, they say worship. Now imagine this man, evil as can be, running to probably just terrify these men who have landed on the shore, seeing it fit now, coming into the presence, realizing who he is standing before, that he must fall to his knees in worship. Never in his life has this man bowed to anyone nor been capable of being bound by anybody. And yet he falls on his knees 
in the presence of Jesus. He shouted at the top of his lungs, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Son of the most high God is the same title that Satan approached Jesus in the wilderness with. Satan and his minions understand who Jesus is and whose son he is. The power that comes with being the son of the most high God. And if we go back to Matthew 8, 28, this is what they said. The demons within this man asked, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So more than that, the demons recognize that within the microcosm that is our world, that there is a specific order upon which God has mandated evil to exist and that there is a schedule, a time and a place when evil will be banished for all time. Totally defeated, conquered, and put away into an abyss that's endlessly deep. They will never return. But they understand the chronology of all of this, that there's a specific order that God intends. So they don't understand why Jesus is standing before them, before the given time. And it tells us in Luke that they begged repeatedly not to be ordered into the abyss. The abyss is something that we learn more about in Revelations 9 and Revelations 20. It's a place where Satan will finally be banished, as I just said, the lake of fire, the final resting place of evil after Jesus triumphs. And so this is what then Jesus says to him. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And many theologians believe that he said that over and over again. That at first these demons were resistant, unwilling to yield and listen to Christ. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? The man replied, my name is Legion. For we are many. Probably much more terrifying than I could ever do. (laughs) Legion represents, in Roman terminology, a troop, a militant order of 6,000 men. So there were thousands of demons residing within this poor, wretched creature. He was saturated with evil, filled probably to the brim. And we can recognize that this demonic power that was in him was very much so unified. They had an authority system that they answered to and they loved and relished in the fact that they had strength in numbers. Something oftentimes I think as believers, we don't consider enough that the forces of evil are very much so united in a common purpose to come against the things of Christ and his people and his church. And there are many moments when we find ourselves, just as a church in America, undivided, frustrated with one another, at odds, while we face a foe who is fully united That's a little terrifying. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. Something we realize here is that if we go back to the books of Daniel, it talks about a little bit that it was almost as if demonic forces and entities were 
uh, assigned geographic locations almost that they would exist amongst. And there were principalities in power that had certain degrees of authority that was often legally given to them by the people that resided there through the ways in which they disobeyed and rebelled against God. And they would have a hold and a grip over that location. And these demons loved the fact that they had the ability to torment this specific region and that the light of Christ had yet to dawn to the Gentile people of Gerasenes. And so they ask over and over and over again not to be sent away. In verse 11, we see a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And Jesus gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And as a lot of people would say, it was a suicide. <laughs> I actually heard that over and over, and I wasn't going to stoop to that level, but I thought it was too good to pass up. <laughs> Literally, almost every pastor I heard preach on this use that line, so I'm not the one who came up with that. <laughs> but I think we had, there's an interesting question that's brought up here. Is that why would Jesus give the demonic forces permission? Why would he compromise almost with their request as they plead with him not to be sent away into the abyss. And we know, we go back to Genesis 6, that there are demonic forces and entities that have already been sent to the abyss, locked in chains and kept there. Why would he allow them to continue to exist in this region? And that's a question that I grappled with and really wrestled with all throughout the week. I'm going to take a moment to answer it. I want to first teach shortly on some of the character qualities of Jesus that I think this story unveils for us. Some really important things. And I'm going to make five points. I've used five different C-letter words to make it simple, okay? The first being calculated. Jesus was calculated. He had a specific purpose that he was looking to achieve. He only wanted to do what he saw his father doing, and he only wanted to say what he heard his father saying, And that meant that he was only going to venture out if it was his father's will. He could not do anything apart from his father's will. So for some specific reason, God has intended for Jesus to travel to meet this peculiar man. Pretty vile and disgusting and unclean man. We see over and over again that in a Jewish context, he has marked himself unclean. He exists among the tombs. He's full of impure spirits. He lives in a region where they have herds of swine and pork is something that they are obviously then consuming. He's naked, which would have been of much shame to a a Jewish person. To uncover someone's nakedness in Leviticus was very much so frowned upon in the law. And so therefore, this man is the last person that we would expect and just the most impure, wretched soul that Jesus could probably find himself in front of. This is not who a Jew would expect the Messiah to go hang out with. And Jesus is literally making a special trip to go befriend him. 
So not only is Jesus calculated and intentional in his pursuit, he's compassionate. He loves so deeply, even those who we would all deem unlovable and rubbish. He's all merciful. And his intention is to seek us even in our misery, our wretchedness, our depravity. Consider that for yourself, the goodness of Jesus's compassion, that he feels the same way for you that he felt to this demoniac. Third, Jesus has control. One of the things I felt like the Lord was speaking to me this week is that I had it twisted. I always thought that there was this spiritual battle that was taking place between good and evil that meant that God was fighting Satan. And I don't think that that's true. God has total authority, control, and at any moment that he intends, he can banish and do away with evil. There is nothing that can stand opposed or against. He is almighty, all-powerful, all-beautiful, no evil in him. He's not fighting evil. He just gives permission for evil to exist so that we can grow. Interesting concept. We humans are the ones who exist in this battle between evil. God doesn't. I think that when we start to realize that, it helps us to understand why he is so often calling out to us and pleading with us to come unto him because he wants to set us free. He has all power and authority to do so, but he's given us a free will so that we wouldn't be robotic creatures, but so that we'd be creatures who could come unto a love for him. And in that love, he could offer us all the many blessings and giftings that he wants to give his children. And that's how he sees you as sheep who have gone astray. He's the good shepherd crying out for you to come back. I'm in control. And that fourth C is cleanse. Jesus can cleanse that which was once dirtied. He has every ability by the shedding of his blood to make right that which was once broken, shattered, sinful, by the covering of his blood that he shed for us, we can be made well. Just like the Israelites used to go to the altar and sacrifice sheep and goats and whatever else that the Lord had intended for them within their specific regulations of the law to do so for the specific sin they had committed to be made clean. No longer do we have to go to that extent because Jesus offers to clean us if we believe. And fifth, said Jesus is confirming his deity. The demons know who Jesus is. Are you the son of the most high God? Or they, they don't even say, are you? They say that he is. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? They know who he is. So to the, these 12 men that are following him, his disciples, it's a nice little confirmation of We're dealing with somebody who's a lot bigger than maybe we had guessed. He shows us time and time again who he is. And yet we still question over and over, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? It's the breaking point of so many people's faith. 
to believe that the word could become incarnate in flesh and dwell among us, but it did. And Jesus is fully God as well as fully man, standing before the demonized man, confronting him and cleansing him. So what we need to realize is that darkness very much so exists and that this realm of the supernatural is real. And the first thing that Satan wishes to do is to convince us that he doesn't exist, that he isn't real. Because then we give him power and authority in our life through our own ignorance. And so if he can convince us that there is no darkness, that we're too sophisticated for that, too intellectual, that we can rationalize away what is happening supernaturally, if we can diagnose it, if we can medicate it, if we can come up with all types of systems and protocols to label it, we're all good, right? That's what we see here in the West. Most people don't believe there are demonic forces that are warring in spiritual realms at all times. It tells us in Ephesians 6, 10, it's a verse that many of us probably know. And I'm forgetting the very first line of it in my head. <laughs> Here we go. Finally, thank you, there it is. It's on there. <laughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's a little bit different. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. It's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. It's against the principalities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So he tells us to stand firm then and on the day of evil to take up the full armor of God with the belt of truth buckled around our waist, with the breastplate of righteousness on and in place, with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, to put the helmet of salvation upon our head and to take the sword of the spirit in our hand, the word of God that should have penetrated our heart to such an extent that it is available to be used by our lips in our moment of need so that we can fight back against the whims and the schemes and the plans of the demonic forces that are wishing to exalt themselves before the Lord and take legal authority over our lives to destroy us and to keep us from peace and freedom. And so the second thing that Satan wishes to do, once we come to an understanding that evil forces truly do exist, is that he wants to make us afraid of them. And this is what so rocked me between the eyes this week. I was just sitting there and I realized some of what I said earlier, this is a bit of a, a touchy subject amongst the Christian community. And though I knew that Jesus had total power and authority, and I know that in my life I've come into contact with those who are demonized and under the authority of the enemy, I found myself often in this wishy-washy place of fighting back 
against, but also being afraid. Almost like a kid who's afraid of the dark. You know there's nothing there in your basement. I grew up in a place where we all had basements. And I was scared of the dark in my basement. And it always felt like there was some icky spiritual thing that was going on down there when it was dark that I didn't want to uh, put myself in front of. And so, yeah, I was a track guy. I can run up a set of stairs. (laughs) And I was zipping up those stairs, man, (laughs) as fast as I could. And I was afraid. And so what we do is out of this fear, I think we often, we vilify the demonized and we set up protocols and we hide away our children and we look at every turn to run that person out instead of to bring them to the altar and the feet of Jesus where there's freedom and deliverance. And I had to repent. He humbled me knowing that there have been people I've come into contact with that I did not treat with the same compassion and love and desire that he would have treated them with. Each and every time I found Jesus encounter someone who was demon possessed, he went out of his way to set them free. He didn't direct them to some doctor. He didn't give them some new ideology. He brought them to him. And in the authority that the father bestowed on his name, he offered them freedom. It tells us in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. That word spirit of fear, spirit is intentional. We are the dwelling place and the temple upon which spiritual entities reside. And we can either give ourselves over to the demonic or we can be filled by the goodness of the advocate the Holy Spirit that Jesus has offered us, it tells us in John 14 that this advocate has come as a gift so as to teach us and to remind us of all the things that Christ brought forth so that we can act in power and in discernment. And when we recognize that that Holy Spirit is more than just power, it's also peace. Because just... 14 verses later, 13 verses later, Jesus tells them, peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. He doesn't give to us what the enemy gives us, trouble and torment. He gives us. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. He tells us over and over to not be afraid. And he desires more than anything as I've studied in my different theological classes. And I had taken some master's classes in a subject matter called global studies, which was pertaining to spreading the gospel to the nations. And there's nothing that God desires more than for his name to be proclaimed to the nations because he realizes that that is where the power is. And that until his name reaches to all people, he cannot accomplish his purposes in their life. Because in none of their free will, they have deprived themselves of the one thing that can offer them abundant life. And that is the name of Jesus. And so as we apply these words, I want to remind us of some of the commissioning that he has placed on our life. And I didn't offer this full verse to go up, but if you would take us to to Mark 16 verses 17 and 18. And I'm going to read a few verses before that as well. 
Be patient with me. Jesus says this, starting in verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized, just like what we witnessed this morning, will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will place their hands on sick people and they will recover. So in our application of understanding the gospel message that has saved us, we have to realize that that message is not devoid of power and demonstration. And one of the things that I felt just so deeply he was placing on my heart is that if it tells us in James 2 that even the demons believe in the most high God and shudder, we have to ask ourselves, do we? Do we have this awe and reverence and acknowledgement of God in his power and might? Because the only reason the demons shudder at his name is because they know he has total authority over them. He is their Lord as well, whether they like it or not. So have we merely acknowledged him without his power? Because I think we, it's really easy to do that. And we look at the westernized church and we begin to ask ourselves, why doesn't he seem to move in the same miraculous ways that he did in the New Testament? Why? And I think a big reason for that is because we lack faith. It's the same thing that he looked at his disciples just before this. And, oh, you little children, you lack faith. And then from that point, why, why would we lack faith in his power? Has he given us any reason not to believe that he will do and accomplish the things that he's done before and he said he will in his promises? Why do we not believe that? And it's, it's often, I think, because at least for my whole life, we didn't teach that in church. And in the ceasing of teaching, we have found ourselves deceived. And more than just Satan looking to express himself, to glorify himself through the torment and the destruction he can have on one's soul, his first and foremost priority that he desires is to exalt himself as an angel of light. And to infiltrate into the body of believers as a wolf in sheep's clothing, looking to deceive its people, to forget and to do away with the power that God has offered his people. And so many, and I, 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 I don't want to stand up here in too much authority. I don't want to like think that my thoughts are exalted in any way. I'm just a humble servant of the Lord. And I felt truly like this is what he placed on my heart to say that many of the churches amongst our land have been deceived and forgotten who God intended them to be. And that as his people, he wishes to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, to restore hearing to the deaf, 
to allow the lame to leap for joy. He wants to set the prisoner free. And that doesn't mean just the people sitting in jail. That means each one of us walking around in our day-to-day jail cells that we have put ourselves in because we're not willing to receive his invitation and to remember the power that he's given us in his name and to repent of where we've been deceived so that we can be cleansed. So I don't have that much more time. But it tells us in James 1.22 to not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but to do what it says. I like this version. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So this morning, as I've stood before you, I hope that I've given scripture its proper integrity that it is sufficient, and that as we look at it, we can see who God intends us to be. And now I'm compelling you to apply it to your life, that if you have been deceived, my hope and my prayer this whole week as I was on my face was that chains would be broken and that the power of God would exalt itself and that people would remember his name and that it would pull them out of the prison cells that they sit in and that they would desire freedom, that the Holy Spirit would just come upon your heart in such a way that you would run to this altar space and that you could find freedom, that he offers that and that we can look like and replicate what was occurring within the early church. There's no reason that we need to look differently than what the very first believers looked like. We're still the church. We're the same entity or the ecclesia. And sometimes over decades and millennium and thousands of years, we forget. And I think that God wants you to know that that's okay. Because he'll remind you. And that's why he gave you his word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made that have been made. And it tells us in verse 14 of John 1 that the word came and made its dwelling place among us. Are you open to him dwelling in you? Do you desire the Holy Spirit? We're about to have a moment here in the altars and we've had this just wonderful example of the transformation power that takes place in the water right before this. I feel like the Holy Spirit is alive and active in this place and is crying out to hearts. And I'm asking you to not be afraid that he wants to give you his peace, but you have to receive it. He wants to deliver you, but you have to want to be set free. He's crying out to you and he loves you and he views you just like he viewed the demoniac as the one that he's willing to leave all the other ministry he was doing amongst his own people behind and come running, pursuing. He was willing to endure the storms, which was nothing for him. (laughs) He has power over the natural and he has power over the supernatural. And he has power in your life. So come to him. He loves you so much. If If I never have a chance to get up and say another thing ever again in my whole life, 
I just want you to know that he loves you so much. He loves you and he's pursuing you and he wants you to be free. So please respond to him. Listen to his words. Don't only listen to the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. The body of believers, don't be afraid. He's given you authority in his name to cast out demons and to set people free. Those who have not yet come unto Christ realize that he's waiting to cleanse you and offer you freedom. And he loves you.